If you'd like to continue your permaculture education while remaining indoors, I recommend picking up a deck of Food Forest cards. With these illustrated, informative cards, you put yourself in the center of a web of relationships, joining together plants, insects, animals, and people. With these cards, you will play fun, challenging games based on these connections, matching the inputs on one card with the outputs of another to create beneficial relationships. For example, you can take one card that produces nitrogen, such as clover, and connect it to a nitrogen consumer, like blackberries, one card that needs a trellis, such as grape, with another card that acts as a trellis, like linden. By matching these relationships, players discover how to use the complex web of nature to their advantage, both in the game and in the garden. In addition to being a fun game, Food Forest cards are responsibly sourced, and every deck sold goes toward planting multiple trees. They not only offset their impact, but honestly improve the environment. Find out more and order your deck of cards today at foodforestcardgame.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is William Padilla Brown, a mycologist, teacher, and social permaculture practitioner. I've known William for a long time, and as you hear us mention, we've wanted to do this interview for years. I'm thankful that we finally had the opportunity. He has a unique background as a citizen scientist and educator, working to propagate mushrooms, study them using molecular biology, and share what he learns with the world through classes and an annual mushroom and arts festival, MycoFest. During the conversation today, William shares how we can get involved as citizen scientists to explore the genetic makeup of mushrooms, as well as plants and insects, with readily available supplies, and skills we can learn quickly. We also dig into his work on breeding mushrooms and the role that molecular biology plays in understanding the health and mating types to create viable strains with the characteristics we are looking for, rather than having them degrade or to breed out to random chance. We end with how you can get started, reflect on how we hope the explosion of mycology might extend to other disciplines, and some of his work on growing algae for food. Enjoy this time with William. I'll join you again after the interview. Then, William, for those listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to do what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. I'm William Padilla Brown. A lot of my work has happened around the Harrisburg, Capital, Central Pennsylvania area. I've been doing this kind of work for my career since I was like 18 years old. So for those of you that don't know, I am the founder an operator of Mycosymbiotics. It is a mushroom research and production business, more focused on research than production. First and foremost, I'm an educator. So a lot of what the business does is research different mushrooms foremost. We do work with algae and other permaculture-based urban farming type systems and social systems, but foremost with mushrooms. And I do a lot of this research so that I can bring new systems and new ideas to the table and the educational events that I participate in. So I started growing mushrooms when I was 18. I have a GED and a permaculture design certificate. So definitely a non-formal training as far as like academics goes. And I took my permaculture course through Susquehanna Permaculture and Ngazi and Harrisburg. And I believe I did that back in 2015, the same year that I started Mycosymbiotics. I also organize and I started a mushroom festival, the Mycosymbiotics Mushroom and Arts Festival, which we've shortened to MycoFest. I started that back in 2015 
with the idea of advancing the uh, ecological literacy of the area, but also providing an affordable event for people of my age and demographic that wanted to get involved. I find it really important to, number one, make events like that very accessible as far as price range goes, but also access to public transportation to get to these places because a lot of events like this, mushroom events, permaculture events often happen in country areas that don't have as much access for public transportation, things like that, to get more people from the cities to come in. And then with the whole arts aspect, including art and music and other things like that to get people involved that might not have been exposed to these kind of realities otherwise. So that's been a big part of the whole social permaculture stuff that I've been doing. And aside from all that, I just, I'm just a nerd citizen scientist. One of the things that fascinates me is how you've come to all of this work. And if I remember correctly, you were one of the first people to commercially produce cordyceps militaris here in the United States. Is that understanding correct? Yes. As far as we know, um, there might there might have been some non-public farms um, that didn't make themselves publicly known in the United States. That I'm not 100% sure of, but I believe that I was the first person to produce them in a commercial setting. I was the first person in the English-speaking world to produce literature for the public on how to cultivate these mushrooms. So I published that book, which is now available in ebook format, and I have another one coming out in print very soon. But I did the first one in at the beginning of 2017. Since then, there's been a really big boom in cordyceps producers in the English-speaking world, both in the, in the United States and Canada. We've seen people pop up in uh, Mexico and South America and uh, ver- various European countries as well. So prior to, to the work that I did, along with my friend Ryan Gates, there wasn't really anybody producing cordyceps militaris outside of the Asian countries. So um, it's been really a really fun journey to be a part of the initial movement of cordyceps production in the English-speaking world. And with that expertise, you say that you started growing mushrooms when you were 18. Why mushrooms and citizen science? Well, it was a really interesting time for me. I mean, I was going through a lot of change in my life. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of wanted to be a part of the whole medical cannabis movement on the West Coast, which didn't really seem feasible coming from Pennsylvania and not having any background in agriculture or cultivation of anything. So I thought it was important that I started to grow food just to get a better understanding of of agriculture. And in my foray into um, gardening and things of that nature, I started to notice there were mushrooms in the garden around that time was the first time I was really exposing myself to natural systems, like the first time I was ever hiking and going out into the forest because my parents didn't really take me out to go do those kinds of things. I started to see these mushrooms all over the place. And this was around the time that I started also to take permaculture courses. I did an apprenticeship with Ben Weiss at uh, Seppi's place when that was still going on. And nobody could teach me about the mushrooms that I was seeing. I was always really curious about them, but nobody had that expertise in either wild mushroom identification or mushroom cultivation around the Harrisburg area. So I noticed that my teachers were supporting their work by teaching other people. And I figured if I wanted to know about mushrooms, there's probably other people that wanted to know about mushrooms. And if there was nobody to teach them, maybe I should take that place to teach people about mushrooms. So I started to learn, read books, go to various agricultural conferences and meet up with other mushroom experts and eventually 
I took a week-long cultivation course and a week-long micro-remediation course with fungi for the people out in Oregon. And I've just been working with the mushrooms ever since. The citizen science kind of came out of the mycological work and the, phy- the work in phycology, so working with algae as well. I built a lab in my home and I started equipping the laboratory with used equipment from local colleges and high schools and things like that that I could get on auction. I started doing microscopy and microbiology at home. Eventually, I got really interested in molecular biology, which I uh, trained myself how to do, working with doing DNA sequencing, DNA barcoding, and reading gels for basic information on, on different projects that I was working on. And I find that it's really important to, one, be able to teach yourself how to do things, and then two, be able to execute the scientific method at home where you can research things outside of university that has kind of more structure, which can be beneficial for things. But the lack of structure and the lack of formal education kind of allows more imagination and more creativity in the scientific process, which allows citizen scientists to uncover things that might have been overlooked or might not have been looked at in an academic setting. So um, I think it's really important for people to be practicing science from home to come to different conclusions that we wouldn't traditionally come to and provide that to the community um, to kind of advance what everybody knows. Do you find that the scientific method and the citizen science method and applying your creativity continually sparks your interest in this material? Are you always finding new things that keeps you seeking new answers? All the time. I found quickly that I, as I was learning about all these different things that I was running to the end of what the internet had to offer me. So I would be researching all these things and then I'd start having new questions that I couldn't answer on Google or Google Scholar or find anything online about it. So at that point, I was like, all right, well, maybe I need to come up with these answers myself. So that kind of started it for me. But now I've gone down this rabbit hole where I keep finding out new things, which exposes me to new doors that need open and and explored what's behind them. So I'm constantly finding just weird stuff, whether it's in my lab or like out in the forest. Last year, I found some weird cordyceps mushrooms that, I mean, if you have bad eyesight, you wouldn't have been able to even see them. Like they were so small and they looked like, I don't know the technical term for the little structures that moss, different types of bryophytes put out, but it almost looked like one of those little structures that you would see that the moss puts out kind of like, like a flower or something like, I don't know what the technical term is for it. But yeah, I found them and I dug up the host and there were these really tiny larvae that were buried in there. And I posted it up on the cordis- on these different cordyceps identification groups and that asked experts to help me figure out. Nobody could figure out what it was. So that, I mean, that's, that's kind of stuff just gets me super excited. And, I'm, and at that point, when I found those last year, I didn't really know how to do the molecular biology stuff where I would have done it. But hopefully I can find them again this year or something else. Um, but when we find un- unidentified species or... Um, unidentifiable species, it's really important to sequence the DNA to see if anybody else has sequenced it and and, and put it online. Um, And if not, then you have the opportunity to identify new species. And literally anybody can do this. Like I could train high schoolers to to go out and do this. And we could have young people finding and, and helping to catalog new species of not just mushrooms, but other things as well. Insects, plants. Plants are definitely more explored, but uh, there's a lot of potential out there. And And with those new species, 
if they haven't been researched at all, there's potential to find novel compounds in them that might have benefits medicinally or novel capabilities that might be good for biotech and or um, all this new architecture and, and uh, textiles and things like that that people are doing with fungi. So yeah, I mean, it's just a constant quest for knowledge. Does the gene sequencing take out a lot of the guess at work over trying to identify something, even though you might not necessarily have a name for it, you know whether it is or isn't related to something else that you find? Yeah, 100%. It takes a lot of the guesswork out. I mean, like, macroscopically and microscopically, you can look at various features that kind of connect it to maybe its genus or maybe the, the family or um, things like that. Like, I can find a mushroom and know, oh, this is Ascomycota, this is uh, Basidiomycota or whatever. But getting that DNA just, like, you upload it onto um, NCBI Blast and it'll it'll say, like, this specimen is... 90% of the DNA is related to this one, or you want like 98, 99 for like a true species identification, but even a couple letters off can can mean that it's a new species or a different species. But either way, you can put it in GenBank as well, and we have like a real-time tree of life. That's why, especially with mushrooms, there's a lot of name changes all the time because we're finding out certain mushrooms are more related to something else than we thought that they were, which is really, really interesting. So it does take a lot of the guesswork out, and it really kind of helps clarify things for us as far as evolutionary history goes and, and uh, relatedness goes. Now, you say you, this is something you teach to high schoolers. What kind of equipment do you have in order to do this in your lab? I bought a kit from this company called Mini PCR, and there's a lot of different companies um, that are offering affordable PCRs, which is a polymerase chain reaction machine, which is one of the more um, important pieces that you'll need for doing molecular biology pieces of equipment. But I bought from them just like a whole kit to extract and amplify DNA from home. All that costs less than like $1,200. So fairly inexpensive. And there's a lot of like cla uh, classrooms, a lot of different classrooms that are equipped with these in high schools and in universities and things. It's really interesting. Like the PCR, just like the computer used to be a big machine and now they're the size of a small jewelry box or something. It can I can set it on my laptop. It's very small. I can put it in my backpack and take it with me to different events, which I have been doing and do this kind of work out in the open, which is something that's fairly new. Like field molecular biology is like something that's only recently been done. And I'm really working on getting another piece of equipment. It's just a little bit difficult with funding myself and making sure everything else is taken care of to get everything I need. But um, I went to the New York Genomic Center last fall, and I took a course with Oxford Nanopore on, on nanopore sequencing. So there's there's a piece of equipment that's about the size of a stapler um, that you can utilize to actually do the sequencing. So right now I uh, extract and amplify the DNA at home, and I send the PCR product to a different company to do the sequencing, but you can do sequencing anywhere now. So I went and learned how to do that. I'm just uh, working on getting the actual equipment to start doing that but I'll be able to travel and take this with me and actually get full genomes or partial genome sequences in the forest in my car or in my tent or something like that while I'm out in an event or in a hotel room, which I think is really powerful. So yeah, all of the equipment's super small and you don't really need that much. Um, Mini PCR is a great place to get started and Oxford Nanopore is a great place to look if you're trying to take it to the next level. 
And how long does it take to amplify and run one of these sequences? To extract and amplify, the process of extraction usually takes me like 45 minutes, um, maybe half an hour if I'm really working through it quickly. And then the, the amplification part that happens in the PCR usually takes about an hour and 45 to two hours to run. Um, and it's just a process of like heating and cooling and heating and cooling at certain temperatures to break the DNA apart, apply the free nucleotides and make copies. So basically you end up with some billion copies of the one strand of DNA that you started out with that makes it easier for the sequencers to read it. So once I have that product, I send it to this company in New Jersey called GeneWiz. Usually if my product is clean and I did everything properly on my end, um, they'll give me results within two days. But with the Nanopore sequencer, I'm not sure how long it takes for that thing to run its full process. But I know you can get it within like 24 hours. You can get your, your genome sequence done on your own. So it doesn't really take that long to get this kind of stuff done. And um, I can run a bunch of these in my house at a time and get results within the next couple of days. Now, are you able to or are you using this process in order to track the senescence of your cultures? Or is that something that you're not concerned about because of the way that you are cloning um, your cordyceps? Um, all right. For those of that don't know, senescence is like like humans becoming senile. You get older and, and some functions begin to slow down or stop. So with mushrooms, especially cordyceps militaris, um, they go through senescence in a very short period of time compared to other gourmet mushrooms. So within nine to 12 months, your culture may not be able to produce fruits anymore. And that's one of the things that I want to start working with a nanopore sequencer for. So what, I, what I'm capable of doing in, uh, with my current molecular biology setup is just getting short genes. Like I just select different genes to be amplified. Once I can start working with larger parts of the genome, I've been learning about RNA transcription, which kind of uh, allows you to understand a little bit more what the genes are actually coding for. Then I could try and figure out what genes are turning off or on that's making the cordyceps stop producing fruiting bodies. At that point, that's good information to know. There's a couple ways you could go about fixing that. I'm, I'm not sure at this point in time any methods of working with that without doing genetic engineering, which is something that I don't do, but that information might be valuable for other people. What I do is I breed them, and that's a way around losing cultures. So every year, I usually do one or two breeding rounds, which takes like a couple months to isolate spores. Once I have spores isolated, like single spores, I test them for their mating type because there's no way of knowing what their mating type is besides checking the DNA right now. So I, I check the DNA, figure out basically if it's a boy or a girl, and then I can breed the boys with the girls. Otherwise, yeah, it's, it, it's a wild process to figure that out. But um Otherwise, I'd have, to I'd have to pair all of them and I'd end up with 50% girl to girl or 50% boy to boy that just wouldn't work. So it'd just be a, a little bit of a waste of time and a waste of material. So I figure out if, what their mating cap capabilities are or compatibility is. And then I mate them together and create these pure commercial type strains with a fair portion of them not being commercial. They're all beautiful in their own way, but um, I'm looking for like high yielding strains right now. So I really started doing this spore pairings this winter um, after I taught myself how to do the DNA work. Before that, I was just throwing a bunch of spores together, 
which you can get commercial producing genetics off of. But when you have a bunch of spores together in a culture, there's a lot of genetics that are going to be expressing themselves. So in one culture, you can have some really long cordyceps, some really short ones, some bulbous ones. I'd rather have those all isolated where I have one culture that produces all long cordyceps or all bulbous cordyceps or whatever it is that I want out of it. So for the past couple of years, I've just been randomly breeding a bunch of them together. And now I've been like specifically breeding um, them together. But that's how I got away from running out. And last year, I found over 200 wild specimens. So they, those can be cloned or you can collect spores from those to breed. Um, and that's really what before well, we start figuring out all this breeding stuff, that's really what we were doing was just finding wild specimens and cloning them. But it was like, there wasn't really anybody that knew how to find a bunch of them in the wild or figured out their ecotypes. It was more of a random occurrence. Like all my forager friends would be like, oh, I, I happened upon a patch of cordyceps. And it's not really like a patch. It'll just be in a general area where there seems to be more than other places. But last year's whenever uh, we really figured it out. My friend Jeff he was just finding so many cordyceps. And later on, I found out that he started looking for them based off of some videos that I had put online. And uh, my friend Ryan up in Detroit was coming down to Pennsylvania and Ohio and uh, various areas to find cordyceps as well. So communicating with each other, we kind of figured out the right ecotypes to find them. And as soon as that happened last year, I just went from finding maybe four in a year to over 200, uh, which really brings up the level of work we can do with them it's really been making me focus more on their ecological role, how they act as a biological control mechanism in our ecosystems and what they're growing on. Because all of the hosts that have been documented are mostly only insects found in Asian countries. So the host species that we're finding them on in North America are undocumented and figuring out what they're growing on is going to play an important role in understanding their ecological uh, roles. So that's something that I've been trying to figure out. Yeah, and uh, we're just having a lot of fun with it. It sounds like there's a, a a wide variety of ways that people can play with and explore this, whether they want to be in the lab, you know, sequencing or trying to develop new cultures or to be out exploring and trying to find what the hosts are, or really just to begin the process by going to look for mushrooms in the wild. When you say you used to find four before and now you're finding hundreds, was that like four different types of cordyceps? I was like, are you really finding lots and lots of different subspecies? Or is this just when you happen to find some in the wild? It was just mostly militaris. Up until last year, I hadn't found any other cordyceps besides, um, there's another common one, acanthomyces, which is technically not like a typical cordyceps. So in the previous years, I'd find like maybe one if I was lucky or four if I was really lucky cordyceps militaris specimen on my own. Militaris is part of a complex that contains four species that are macroscopically identical. Um, they will grow on different hosts, but for anybody that's not um, really savvy with it, it would all just look like Militaris. So yeah, it was just Militaris. But last year, I started to find other species. So uh, we did a Memorial Day foray in the Michaux State Forest out here where I found a Ophiocordyceps ravinelli, which is a type of cordyceps mushroom that grows on June bug larva. So I found that right before, like I right right in May Memorial Day. So like right before the June bugs would have been completing their larval stage and, and popping up, um, flying around and doing their thing, uh, we we're finding these cordyceps that were growing on their larva. 
which was really interesting. And then I found that other weird one uh, that I was not able to identify. And I found some cordyceps growing on a cicada, uh, which was really interesting. And that was a whole different other species as well. So I figured out the little niche that cordyceps like to grow in and started finding other specimens as well, but lots and lots of cordyceps. And then this other one, Isaria, which is kind of, I don't want to say pathogenic, but it's it's a deterrent. It's one that we don't like to pick up when we're in the forest if we're looking for cordyceps because it'll grow on militaris. It'll outcompete militaris if you're trying to grow it indoors. So it's something that you really don't want to bring in the lab. But uh, we've been seeing various Asian countries ut- utilizing the Isaria medicinally. So it might have some benefits. People want to only cultivate Isaria. That might be something that's that's fruitful. But yeah, we've been figuring out how to do it. And last year at MycoFest, uh, we hosted the first cordyceps foray which was super successful. We took a group of folks out specifically looking for cordyceps mushrooms, but also kind of finding whatever mushrooms we we could find to bring back for our table. But we did find a lot of cordyceps, which was really fun. If somebody wanted to go out and start looking, like what are the best times of year, time of day? Should it be dry, wet? Like what are the general conditions to go looking for cordyceps? Probably this year because spring's coming a little early. They might start popping up around the end of May. Typically they'll start popping up in June and they... You can find them until end of October. Yeah, so they have a pretty long season. And then, I mean, last year was really dry and it did not matter at all. They typically will grow near creeks. So maybe they'll use some of the moisture that's evaporating out from the creek. But I was able to find them when it was really dry. Um, But I, I do think that certain years will produce more cordyceps than others. It really depends on the uh, insect population. It doesn't necessarily matter if it's been raining. If it's been raining, it does help. And I think understanding the insect, once we figure out what species they are and understanding their life cycle will help us to find more as well. But they generally grow in like boggy areas, areas where there's a lot of uh, dry creek beds where there's like where you can see that when it rains a lot, that's where the water is going to move through to get to the creeks. And uh, generally around like oak hemlock mixed forest, which we have a fair amount of here in Pennsylvania in mossy areas. They really like moss or like sand. And that's that's where, we're, where I'm finding a lot of them. And my first interaction with cordyceps and learning about them was, I think it was a National Geographic special, and they were infecting ants and saw the life cycle there. Is that what we're going to be looking for if we're looking for cordyceps, that they've like parasitized an insect and be growing up out of the insect body? Or is that just part of the life cycle and they can actually grow out of the ground then after being in a host? All right, that's a super interesting question. So cordyceps are really interesting for many reasons, but their life cycle is just mind-blowing. So cordyceps-type mushrooms are part of a, a group that do this strange thing called anamorph or morphing. And if anybody's ever read the anamorph books, it's something fairly similar. And I think it's due to the fact that they're so small and they live on insects that are so small. So typically, we'll only see them fruiting from their host, um, which is generally an insect. But there are different cordyceps type mushrooms that will grow off of other fungus, typically false truffles. We call them false truffles because they're not like the gourmet type truffles, but truffle type fungus. Um, So sometimes the host will be like an actual truffle ball in the ground for different species. But for talking about insect type species... With militaris, which is one of the more, most successful cordyceps and one of the reasons why it's more commonly found, because it grows on, I mean, I'm going to say 50 plus insect species, mostly 
Lepidopteran and uh, I can't remember the group that beetles are in, uh, but beetles and like butterflies and moths. Only in the past couple of years have we been seeing them on other species. My friend Jeff out near Pittsburgh found, I think, two specimens of militaris growing on a wasp, which is really interesting and might have potential benefits as a biological control. But there are also other cordyceps that naturally or I mean, I guess that that was a natural thing, but there are other uh, species that specifically grow on wasps. I'm a big proponent of uh, if we're utilizing these entomopathogenic fungi for biological pest control to stick with species that grow on that insect. So we're not encouraging them to learn how to grow on other insects and maybe doing something um, detrimental to the ecosystem. All that aside, the cordyceps release their spores. So what we know from mating them in the laboratories, it takes two compatible spores meeting to produce a culture that's capable of fruiting. So if we're thinking about this in the wild for two mating compatible spores to land on a small insect from this tiny mushroom. It's quite ineffable, very unexplainable. But we see this fungus morphing. It's way easier for two mating compatible spores to land on the ground together near the mushroom. Cordyceps militaris will morph into two different types of soil mold, lacanicillum and simplicillum, common soil molds. Um, and one of the reasons I believe that they'll morph into these soil molds is they'll live a duration of their life as a mold in the soil. And whenever the insect buries itself, so typically the beetles or the moth will, larva will bury themselves to uh, undergo metamorphosis, pupate, and eventually turn into an adult. Um, I think that might be when the militaris comes in contact with the insect and it might possibly morph back into cordyceps militaris. And one of the things that kind of reassured that idea for me, um, I was speaking with another expert, Daniel Winkler. Um, I was out teaching in, uh, for the uh, Puget Sound Mycological Society, which is the largest mycological society in the country. But Daniel is an expert. He's been going out to different countries and looking at mushrooms for probably my whole lifetime. And he told me that the traditional Tibetan or Himalayan cordyceps, Ophiocordyceps sinensis, morphs into an endophytic fungus. So endo means inside and then phytic means plant or like fight. So it's a fungus that will live inside of the leaves of a specific plant. But the plant that it lives in is the same plant that the caterpillar host eats. So that might be how that comes in contact with, with its host. So I think that these cordyceps have figured out ways to live in the ecosystem and perform other functions in the ecosystem until they come in contact with their host. And then once they come in contact with their host, a gentleman from Penn State actually figured this out be, uh, because in like the National Geographic and the BBC documentaries, they often refer to the cordyceps as like a zombie fungus that takes over the mind of the insect, but that's not true. The gentleman at Penn State, which I, I wish I could remember his name right now, he found out that it's more so they're taking over the muscular structure of the insect and moving them through the ecosystem, which that part really it just blows my mind that through another organism, it's capable of navigating this environment. This fungus is capable of like navigating this 340 environment and putting itself in a position for better release of its spores for propagation of its mushroom in a, in a better place. So, I mean, that whole thing just completely blows my mind. And there's, there's so much more to, to understand about its life cycle in, in nature. And that's something that I'd really like to spend a fair portion of my life looking at. And that reinforces that need for citizen science and people to be taking 
part in the conversation because the more eyes we have on the ground, the more likely that we're to see parts of this process that inform then the ongoing research. Yeah, 100%. I mean, maybe last year was just a really good year for cordyceps or maybe we are just learning more together and a lot more people are looking for them because so, like not only did I have a good year for cordyceps, but so many people were posting online. I found all these cordyceps mushrooms and da 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 da. And I, I think, I think it was a combination. Like I think it was a good year, but I also think that there's now way more eyes looking at this, and way more eyes will find more things. And I really appreciate social media for allowing us to see, oh, such and such found cordyceps in the Adirondacks, or these people found cordyceps on this foray out in West Virginia, and all this kind of stuff. And that's something I've been documenting as well, is where people are finding them so that I could potentially go out this summer and hopefully if it's if it's okay uh, to, to go out. <laughs> and I know they're closing state parks and stuff right now, but to go out this summer and visit a lot of these locations that I've documented from different people on forays or on their own finding these cordyceps and kind of see what's going on in the bigger picture. And then through the DNA, understanding when was the closest relative or when was the closest ancestor of these cordyceps that we're finding all around in the uh, around the country, when were they most closely one organism? Like where where did they disperse from? So um, I think all of these things are are really important and uh, really cool to see other people working on together. Um, it really is helping to advance this rapidly. It's really awesome to see how far this is moving and how much it's been adopted and adapted into the permaculture community. I know that there were some people doing mushroom logs and doing some basic growing when I first got involved. And then it was like Trad Cotter's work really pushed the edge and made a lot of this super accessible for people. And it just continues to grow and expand. I remember it was, you mentioned Seppi's place earlier. There were a bunch of us sitting around one day and I think it was Jono had a spore print and there were like a cluster of four or five people standing over it, figuring out what the identifying features were in order to figure out exactly what mushroom it was. And, you know, just having all of that available in a way that it wasn't when I began all this just 10 years ago. Yeah, it's it's really insane. I mean, speaking of Trad, like, uh, he's been very, very supportive of my work for years. And to be able to stand on the shoulders of giants like that, it's been incredible. So there's a lot of people that put in the groundwork that made this possible for us to be able to even work on this kind of stuff from home. You know, I mean, he put out his book, Organic Mushroom Farming and Micromediation, which has been a tome for me. And then we have people like Peter McCoy that put out his radical mycology book that's just like rapidly increasing the myco literacy around the country, helping more people to figure out how to do this. And then, I mean, we all know Paul Stamets and he kind of just solidified this is like what you can do with his books that he put out before I was even born, I think. And Paul's also been an incredible person to be in contact with and and communicate with about these things, just rapidly, rapidly pushing uh, what what we all know. Yeah, a lot of people set the groundwork. And now, I mean, there's tons of videos online. Um, I've been putting out videos for five, six years on this kind of stuff. And everybody's out at these conferences. Like now all these agricultural conferences have their own mushroom tracks and stuff nowadays. So the information is really disseminating and it's disseminating in ways that's digestible. I think initially... It came from more of an academic place, which isn't digestible to the general population that doesn't have that kind of jargon down, that doesn't know the technical terms and things like that. Because now we have people like myself that come from 
uh, a background of not completing uh, high school traditionally that's able to communicate these ideas in a language that's more digestible to the general population. So I think that is something that's that's really important and really critical in the way that mycology as a citizen science is is really growing very fast. And I'm hoping that in the way that mycology has been grasped by the general population, that other sciences might be able to reach that level at some point. But I think mushrooms are really unique in the way that they build community um, in comparison to other uh, sciences. Well, I remember as a kid going out and foraging with mushrooms as a family event, and there's, you know, a dozen of us in the woods. The adults largely were the ones picking, but we were still there as the children along for that experience and having this kind of community event and then, you know, going back and enjoying a good meal around everything that had been picked. There's something about mushrooms that takes us to the woods. And then from there, as you've shared with us today, there's this whole world of personal and community exploration that can stem from that. Yeah, it's insane. I'm really, really hoping that that something similar will happen with algae, but I think it's just so niche. Like I haven't been able to capture as many people's attention with with the algae thing yet, but I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, because you you've been growing what is it, spirulina for a number of years? Yeah, I've been growing spirulina for I think four years. And other species as well, but spirulina is kind of that gateway algae. It's the one that gets people started and immersed into everything else. But I published a little ebook on algae just like an introduction to algae and it's like not doing numbers like the cordyceps one has like not nearly. And I've taught various algae classes, which when I do them in cities, they're typically like packed out. But I did one at an agricultural conference in in Mars Hill, North Carolina. And uh, I've done at the organic grower school and I've done the organic grower school for years and my mushroom classes are always packed up. But when I did this algae class, it was a, there wasn't that many people that showed up for either of them which was really interesting because it's because of the potential is insane. I mean, it can grow on, on water that we wouldn't use for any agricultural systems or non-potable water. It can grow in non-fertile land that we wouldn't be able to use for other agriculture. It uses less water than animal husbandry or any other form of agriculture and produces faster. Uh, it's the fastest growing agricultural crop that we have. And algae produces 70% of the world's oxygen. So there's so many different hitting points that I could talk about forever. I just think it's going to take a little bit more time for people to wake up to it. And I don't really know the best approach because I kind of feel isolated. There's only like four other people that I really even talk to about algae that, that work with algae. So I don't know if or when that will um, reach the general population, but hopefully it does because there's a lot of potentials and benefits that we could be reaping from these organisms, especially in a time like this. Maybe we can come back and have another conversation about algae here in the future. It's something that's been fascinating for me as I return to brewing and fermentation, the idea of being able to have something that I can grow in my home, regardless of like what the rest of the world has going on in a relatively small space, and being able to provide supplementary nutrition to myself and my family. And it's one of those things that when I've seen what you were doing with it before, it really just captured my imagination because we can do it with so little equipment. But that is a conversation for another day. For everything we've talked about when it comes to citizen science and mycology, you mentioned Trad, Peter, Paul. Are there any other authors whose work you'd recommend as places to start or gateways into this world? Our friend Willoughby, uh, Willoughby Arevalo, he just published a book, I think, last year, uh, which is a great 
guide for cultivating mushrooms from home. Those are all the great intro books. And then from there, there's lots of ID books. Um, There's more and more regional ID books coming out every year, which is really important because mushrooms are very different regionally, uh, which mushrooms will, will produce. Other than that, I mean, I haven't really read many mushroom books in quite some time. I've kind of like, at this point, reading more like academic research papers and, and things of that nature. But yeah, all of those books are great. Willoughby, uh, Trad, Peter, Paul, um, they all have really great material for anybody that's looking to get started. Yeah, at this point, I would just, I would really I recommend people just check out, you know, good old YouTube University. There's enormous amounts of material. And then the, uh, if anybody's on Facebook, they can check out the Mushroom Growing Group on Facebook. A lot of great people on there and everybody's just posting all the time about what they're doing and helping each other to learn more about mushroom cultivation. So those are all really great places to start. And then for anybody who would like to learn more about you, get in touch about your classes or anything else, pick up your eBooks, where can folks find you? I'm very active on Instagram at mycosymbiote. Uh, it's M-Y-C-O-S-Y-M-B-I-O-T-E and Mycosymbiotics, uh, Mycofest as well. I supply our sister company, Cognitive Function, with mushrooms to create food as medicine products. So you can check out Cognitive Function on Instagram or at cognitivefunction.net. If anybody wants to see my calendar, which is probably going to get a big overhaul here this week because um, a lot of my events got canceled uh, for the next couple of months. But uh, mycosymbiotics.net, my calendar is on there. Uh, mycofest.net, if you want to look into participating in the event. Um, which doesn't happen until uh, the end of July, beginning of August. So hopefully everything will be good by then. Facebook, William Padilla Brown, YouTube at Apex Grower. Other than that, yeah, just check the calendar, come to any events once we can go to events again, and I'll be available and usually hang out afterwards and communicate with people. So it's always really fun. And as I always like to close these interviews, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners? You know, I think that we're living through some really interesting times with everything that's that's going on right now and i think that people spending time with themselves and with their family um and dealing with what we're dealing with with the availability of resources through stores and things like that that hopefully people will um, start to look outside and even in their own backyards and see how much nature is really providing for us uh my big my big way of life is really just authenticating yourself finding what you really vibe with so to speak finding the things that make you happy the things that make you tick and just going after that with all of you got i mean everybody's different there's nobody else like you so i think that every single one of us has something interesting to bring to the table or a point of view to bring to the table and I really think that connecting with nature is one of the best ways to uh, remember who we are or find who we are, um, because nature is just an extension of ourselves. So just remembering those kinds of things is really important. Yeah, so I'm, I really encourage people to take a walk in the woods, you know, it's safe, learn how to find clean water and learn what different types of incredibly nutrient-dense foods are growing around you at the different times of year. Maybe join a mushroom club, maybe connect with your local permaculture community and uh, figure out what you can do. A lot of the work that I do and the work that others in this community do kind of 
I feel directs people more towards a natural and holistic lifestyle and viewpoint of the world. But I don't want to deter people from working with technology, um, which I believe is in, is important. And there's people that are more savvy with technology. And just to let them know that these sustainable systems can be applied on a technological and social level as well. So it doesn't always have to be just nature and gardening and foraging and things like that. So I really encourage people to broaden their horizons, take a step into uncomfortability and, and explore these new realities um, so that we may all trek them together and our, our children and our children's children will have a brighter future and be able to navigate these new realities and figure out other new things. So kind of just keep this ball rolling. Uh, that's all I have to say. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, getting me on here. I've wanted to be on here for years. So I feel like we've played tag off and on for so long and it took a pandemic for us to find the time to sit down and do it. But I'm really glad that we did. And I look forward to hopefully sometime in July as things kind of calm down a bit that we can do something else again in person and do a photo shoot in your lab and show people more about what you're doing with mushrooms, algae, and everything else. But for now, thank you so much for taking this time and joining me today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for everybody who's listening. Thank you, Scott. And, uh, you know, propagate my ciliate. And that was William Padilla Brown. You'll find links to Mycosymbiotics, Mycofest, and the other resources he mentioned in the show notes. I also have a copy of his ebook, Cordyceps Cultivation Handbook Volume 1, to give away to a listener. You'll also find a link to that in the show notes. I'm always impressed by William continuing to push the edges of his work with mushrooms, mycology, and food systems, and making this knowledge accessible to everyone around him. From setting up the right environment for growing fungi, to how to identify different types, to how to propagate, and now how to create gene sequences, he develops his knowledge and skills and then shares what he's learned. His interest, built on books and workshops, and then through further personal exploration, allowed him to become an expert in mycology in his own right in five years. Now he's conquering microbiology and gene sequencing to get even better at what he already does. Imagine where he'll be in another five years, or ten, or twenty. I reflect on this because I've recreated myself every decade or so of my life. I studied computer science and worked in information technology through my late teens and 20s, leveraging those skills and a few years in college radio as a DJ, and finally taking a permaculture design course, became a podcaster. I took all that and went back to school to learn about resource management to better understand permaculture while honing my interview skills to get better at drawing out people's personal narratives. Now I go back to my years as a storyteller, as a teenager and in my 20s, and consider how we can tell better stories and integrate them into our lives, changing ourselves, and transforming the world. I believe that each of us has the ability to become experts in multiple areas. We can do this in traditional ways, schools and college education, or in non-traditional ones, through personal reading and study, the University of YouTube, mentorships, and immersive internships. The hard part is deciding what we truly care about. Once we know what gives our life meaning, we can climb onto the shoulders of the giants that came before us and see horizons they've only dreamed about. What do you love so much that you'll take the next step towards the edge of human knowledge and use your passion to add to our collective understanding? Let me know. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, 
Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day learning more about what you love while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.